Good afternoon, congregation of Sardis. What a joyous and special day we are celebrating. It is the Lord's Day when we remember that our Savior Jesus Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday like this 2,000 years ago. And it is also the day that we can celebrate one of his gifts to his church, the gift of an under-shepherd. After three long years, you are now blessed with a pastor of your own. It is my honor and privilege to ordain him this afternoon. If you're able, please rise for worship. Congregation of Jesus Christ, from where does your help come? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Amen. Receive his greeting, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have any of you ever examined Psalm 22 closely? And we think of Psalm 22, we connect it rightly to Jesus' suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They have pierced my hands and my feet, for my clothing they cast lots. But if you read a little further, we notice that there's a change in the psalm. There's a shift there, a shift towards hope at the end of verse 21. We see that Jesus Christ experienced verses 1 through 20, that we could experience the verses 21 through 31. So let us, the 21 through 31 people, sing that portion of Psalm 22, put to music and rhyme in the song, Amid the Thronging Worshippers, all three stanzas.
One of the many glorious riches of Christ's salvation was that he kept and fulfilled the law for us. So let us now read of that law, seeing what he has done, and seeing the transformed law as our guide for thankful giving. Thankful living, rather. This afternoon we read the law from Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your, fe- your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, and trembled, and they stood far off, and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We see God's power and God's holiness in the giving of the law. But what we should not forget is that we also see God's love in the giving of this law, in relating to his people, in showing them a picture of who he is. He does this as one step in restoring the relationship lost in the Garden of Eden. Let us now respond to the law by singing of our trust in our powerful, loving God to save us. Psalm 33, the stanzas 4, 5, and 6.
Please bow with me now in prayer. Heavenly Father, mighty God, we confess that we take comfort, we find rest, safety, and security in you and you only. It is through your great name that we have received salvation. And we thank you that while the psalmist merely awaited the great Redeemer, we have seen him, we have experienced him, Jesus Christ, our Savior. In him alone our heart rejoices, for we trust in his holy name. Lord, there are so many enemies that we can encounter. The enemies of the devil, the world, and our own flesh. We thank you that you have defeated the devil, crushing him under your foot at the cross. We thank you for the promise that the defeated devil will become the destroyed devil one day. We ask that you would bring about that day soon. I pray also for victory over the world. There are so many times when we could despair, looking out at an increasingly godless world where we are mocked and mistreated for our faith, where young men and young women are confused and manipulated into horrible decisions. Lord, we look out at this world and we can despair, but we know that you are in control and that you will win the day, that we, your church, will be vindicated and you, our God, will be glorified that all those who raise themselves up against your church will either be converted and welcomed into the church or will be defeated. I pray for victory also over our own sinful flesh. Lord, as we heard your law, we heard a list of our sins before you. We heard of our failures this past week. But we thank you that we also heard of what our Savior forgave us for, what our Savior fulfilled for us, I pray that you would give us strength to fight these battles well, to be destroying sin that it might not be destroying us. Bless us this special day, we pray, this special service as we hear your word preached and as a new preacher of that word is ordained. Bless us and keep us, we pray. In the name of Christ, our Savior and Chief Shepherd, amen. Now, contrary to what will appear on the screen, I'm sure, and what is in your liturgy sheets, we will not be reading from John chapter 17, but instead Ephesians 3. So I'm not sure if that can be brought up on the screen last minute, or hopefully you have Bibles close by. So what we're going to do is we're going to, instead of looking at another passage of Scripture and how it relates, we're just going to look at our text in context. I had great ideas for how I was going to draw the connections, and then I realized that Ephesians 3 is so rich as it is by itself. Also, that we are splitting it up into two parts already, um, and I didn't want to take anything away from the context here. So, we will read together the first 13 verses of Ephesians 3 as our reading. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations 
as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then this is our text. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In response to this amazing description of God's salvation for all people, that mystery gathering the Gentiles into his church, let's sing now from the Old Testament a prophecy that already hundreds of years before Christ predicted exactly this, the calling in of the Gentiles from the nations. Let's sing Psalm 87, the stanzas 1, 2, and 5. Still on the idea of Psalm 87, 
You may notice in the stanzas we sang and even in the ones that we didn't, which nations are mentioned. It's not just that other nations are brought in, but it's former enemies of Israel. Egypt had them in slavery. Babylon had them in exile. The Cushites, the Philistines, the Tyrians, they all oppressed Israel, but they all were brought in. And that's what all of us are. We are former enemies now called sons and daughters. Truly amazing. We've come now to our text, Ephesians 3, the verses 7 through 11. We already read it, but I would like to read it again so it's fresh in our minds. So please turn there with me, Ephesians 3, 7 through 11. Now this is a text chosen for me by Tim after I asked him to do so for his ordination, and I'm so glad that he chose this one. It really is the perfect text. So let's read it once more, Ephesians 3, the verses 7 through 11. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. After the sermon, without further announcement, we will sing our Amen song of In Christ Alone, the stanzas 1, 3, and 4. May God bless the preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, this past week I experienced one of the many joys of being a pastor, a birthday visit with an elderly sister in the congregation. At that visit, something that she said really stuck out at me and and it stuck with me too. As she poured the coffee in, in her living room, I wanted to be sure that I remembered which birthday she was celebrating. And so I said, and it's, uh, it's 86 this year, right? She turns to me, and with a twinkle that she always has in her eye, she says, never you mind 86. God is good every day. Never you mind 86. I love it. We all, we all define ourselves in so many different ways. By our age, where we live, our career, how much money we make, how big our house is, how many children or grandchildren we have. And all of these things, they do have their importance, everything in its place, but how can we learn the same lesson and come to the same conclusion as our sister in Cloverdale? Never you mind 86. God is good every day. How can we learn to have this proper view of ourselves? Because it's only then, knowing what is irrelevant about us, what is of the highest importance, and everything in between, that we can live a properly balanced and pleasing Christian life to God. And so this afternoon, this, this challenge, this is the challenge that comes to us. Though this is an ordination sermon for, for Tim, I'm not only preaching to Tim. What is the most important thing to us? Even Tim, who today is receiving one of the highest honors and heaviest responsibilities a Christian can ever receive, that of being a pastor. Tim, you need to know that As of a half hour, 45 minutes from now, being a pastor is not the most important thing about you. 
It's not irrelevant. It's very important as the holy calling that you've received from God. But the most important thing about each one of us is that we're loved by God. The most important thing about each and every one of us is that we are his children. Never you mind 86. God has chosen you. God loves you. God saved you. And you are his. And so with our minds beginning to be focused on what truly matters the most, I bring you this challenge, this instruction from the Apostle Paul. Be an Ephesians 3 church with an Ephesians 3 pastor. We do that by having the humility of Paul, by marveling over the greatness of God, and recognizing the purpose of the church. Be an Ephesians 3 church with an Ephesians 3 pastor, have the humility of Paul. It's a strange theme. I'll acknowledge that. It's, it's a unique theme. It could really apply to any number of chapters in the Bible. But with my extensive years in the ministry, it's a joke, it's only coming up on three years, I know that Ephesians 3 is something that is vitally important for every minister to hear. Vitally important for every congregation to hear. Starting today and for the rest of your life, Tim, you will be an ordained man. A man worthy of double honor. A man whose words carry serious weight to them. Even when you're not preaching, though especially when you are. And because of this, pride is lurking. Pride is lurking behind every corner. Pride is lurking when you preach a dynamite sermon. Pride is lurking when you have success in in various evangelism programs. Pride is lurking with every handshake you receive, every time you hear the words, good sermon, pastor. Pride is right there. And congregation, Ephesians 3 is not just for pastors. Pride lurks in all of our hearts. We have to learn to say, never you mind, to more things than just about our age. If someone goes on and on about how talented, how successful, how lovely a person you are, learn to say, never you mind. Because pride is lurking right around the corner. Pride is something natural, but humility is not. Pride lurks around every corner. Humility is only found through much effort. And the Apostle Paul, he was a man who knew humility. We see this in the first few verses of our text. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Let's examine both of those humble statements. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It's the first humble statement. Paul realized that he was not chosen because of his holiness. After all, he described his former life as one of blasphemy, persecution, and insolence. Paul was not chosen because of his intellect. Paul was not chosen because of anything in him. But rather, he was chosen because of God's grace, because of God's love. If this does not humble you, then nothing will. That you're chosen and your choosing has nothing to do with you. It says to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So why is Paul the very least? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, there he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The apostle Paul, he wasn't always this tower of godly strength that we see. 
The Apostle Paul used to be a totally different person. He went by a different name, he had different priorities, he had a different heart. So let's briefly look at who Paul was before God got a hold of his life. The Apostle Paul, he used to go by the name Saul, undoubtedly named after the first king of Israel. It was a name that he lived up to, a heart filled with pride, filled with malice, even filled with murder. Saul believed in God generally, but he didn't believe in God as his father. God was more of his boss, and an absent-minded boss at that. Clearly, God wanted all of those heretical Christians killed. He just hadn't gotten around to telling anybody to do it yet. So Saul decided to take, to take matters into his own hands. He decided that he would live up to his name, the asked-for one. You've heard of the arrogant, ridiculous men who think they're God's gift to women. Well Saul, well, Saul thought he was God's gift to Judaism. He would be the champion. He would be the hero. And he had a one-track mind. Stop the Christians. Paul went, Saul, rather, went to Damascus in hope of finding more Christians to imprison, torture, and kill. We must realize that this was no small trip. 330 kilometers approximately the distance of Sardis to Vernon, Saul had been marching with one purpose in his mind, kill all Christians. Day after day, step by step, in the heat and the dust of the road, propelled by one thought, all Christians must die. This cult must be stopped. This was Paul before God got a hold of him. You can read the story of Saul's conversion in Acts 9, I encourage you to do so maybe this afternoon between services. Read about the story of the power of Jesus Christ. The story of a monster, because that's who Saul was, who encountered the miracle of grace. Even though he had been chosen since before the foundation of the world to be God's apostle, before that light flashed around him, Saul had been a tool in the hands of Satan. And so what our Savior did on that road was to wrench his vessel away from the hands of his archenemy. And so Saul, God's gift to Judaism, became the Apostle Paul. Apostle, one who is sent out. And Paul, what does his name mean? One who is small. You can see that there's one description of Paul that sort of made its way through history. Apparently he was a very short man, among other things. But truly, whether he was historically short or tall, he was small in spirit, in the sense that he was humble. He lived up to his name with his heart in the right place. Because Paul, he never forgot his days as Saul. He never forgot who he was before God got a hold of him. The Apostle Paul, he was a man fully informed by his past, but never controlled by it. That's what we all have to do. Informed by our past, never controlled by it. Because notice what he does with with his learned humility. Notice what he does not say here, what he does not say in any of his letters. He never doubts that he is a saint. He doesn't doubt that he is called. It's humility to think little of yourself but it's blasphemy to make little of God. When you think about your past and if you're controlled by it and you say, because of that, God can't use me, you have to rethink that. Because do you really think that anything you could do could be that powerful? 
Do you really think that you could ever outsin God's grace? Is sin that powerful? No. Indeed, God, his grace, his love, each and every one of his perfections is something to marvel over. So make a little of yourself, but make much of God. This is the calling, first of all, to the minister. Tim, in your preaching and your teaching and your visiting, make much of God and teach your congregation to do the same. That's our second point. Make much of God. Now, this is a popular Christian phrase in, in the broad evangelical church, but, but can we use it? There's something that might sound a bit off about it. Isn't making much of God another way of saying that we should inflate God, that we should present him as greater than he is? Well, no, not at all. And it doesn't mean that for two reasons. First of all, to make much of God, it simply it doesn't mean that at all. To make much of God is, is another way of saying that we should magnify God. To make much of God is to take the words of Psalm 34 on our lips. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name, to, excuse me, let us exalt his name together. Again, we see this in Psalm 69. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. So to make much of God, to magnify him, it simply means to praise him as he is. Because this is something that we must do. Because just like our natural inclination in our first point of pride, our natural inclination is to minimize God. Our natural inclination is to make little of God. Oh God, he doesn't care about that. Oh God, he doesn't know about that. Oh God, he's, he's not really like that. Our natural inclination is to put God in our little box and claim to have fully understood him. But this is impossible. For all of our doctrine, our three forms of unity, as true and wonderful and comforting and beautiful as they are, and in no way do I want to minimize them, but do you really think that they fully bring out all of the riches found in Scripture? They don't. They're a summary. And for all that scripture is, divinely inspired, authoritative, a living, breathing document, the very word of God, with something new for us to learn every time we read it, do you think scripture fully explains all of who God is? No, it's just what God has chosen to reveal to us right now. One of the great joys in heaven, one of the great joys of life without end in the presence of God will be spent learning more and more and more about him forever. Having our minds and hearts filled to overflowing and then expanding and filled to overflowing again. Forever. That leads us to the second reason that it's good for us to make much of God. Do you really think that we ever could exaggerate or inflate God in any possible way. How could we ever exaggerate a love that bankrupted heaven? A love that split history in two. A love where the Son of God emptied himself of all of his divine glory and became a servant who suffered and died. How can you exaggerate a story like that? How could we ever exaggerate a holiness that is so complete, that is so absolute, that even the seraphim, these burning, holy creatures themselves cover their faces and their feet while they worship. 
no congregation, no Tim of of all the concerns we may have as Christians, all the concerns we may have as ministers to get it right. The one mistake that you will never make, the one mistake you never can make is overstating the majesty and the glory of God. That's just not possible. And Paul, having been amazed and awestruck that he was chosen to be an apostle, a sent out one, is even more amazed at the content of the message that he's told to preach. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Just what are these unsearchable riches? Well, it is in some ways a fool's errand to try to search out the unsearchable riches, but this afternoon we'll at least try to make a little ground here. The unsearchable riches of Christ. These are riches that not only belong to Christ, but they are riches about Christ. These riches conveniently all start with the letter P. Easy to remember. These are the riches of his person, riches of his propitiation, and finally the riches of his purpose. First of all, the riches of his person. I'll have to go through these very quickly. All of these riches recognizing that in a million years of preaching, these riches could not fully be sought out. Again, one of the joys of heaven, we'll be searching out these unsearchable riches. And so, Tim, when you preach the holy word of God, bring out the person of Christ. Congregation, when you hear the holy word of God, listen for the preaching on the person of Christ. Just who is this Savior of ours? Well, he is the first promise to the newly sinful humanity. He's the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He is the only hope for all those who find themselves caught up in sin. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is the breaker of chains. He's the one who's been tempted as we are yet without sin, understanding our misery and being able to save us from it. He's the final Adam. He's the one who got it right. The one who, when he was in a garden, When he was tempted, tempted to the point of despair with the weight of the wrath of God bringing him to his knees, fear of of agony of being rejected by his heavenly father bringing sweat like great drops of blood to his brow, he did not give in. He willingly accepted the cup that was given to him. He's fully God and fully man, fully divine, with all the glory and honor due his name. Fully divine, yet he emptied himself of all of that glory and honor and took on the form of a servant, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. By the power of his divine nature, he bore in his human nature the wrath of God which we all deserved. This is his glorious person, the unsearchable riches of the Son of God, our Savior. And then how did he save us? Well, that's through what was known as propitiation. It's a hard word. It's a rare word. You might want to write it down. Most Bible translations now, they've they've gone away from it. But it's a good word, and we're going to stick with it this afternoon, and I promise you it's worth it. This is a word that Paul uses in Romans 3. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 
And this word, it's, it's rarely used in the New Testament, but it has a long Old Testament history. It's connected with the word for mercy seat. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the same word is used for mercy seat. And you may be thinking, okay, so what? Why is this important? Why is he saying mercy seat with such awe and wonder in his voice? Well, let me tell you. Due to Adam and Eve's sin, mankind could not walk and talk with God face to face in the cool of the day. Due to Israel's sin, the people could not even approach God themselves. We heard this in the reading of the law that they stood far off. Moses was the only one to draw near. And then after, when he received the law, when they built the tabernacle, when they built all of those wonderful things for the sanctuary, they had to be represented to God by the high priest before the mercy seat once a year. God said, I will meet with you only at one place, on the mercy seat. The only time that I will have that true fellowship with you, that uninterrupted fellowship, is when you sprinkle blood right there on the mercy seat. When you do, I will meet with you there. I will speak with you there and only there. So what does Paul do? What does Paul say? He applies this to Jesus Christ. So for us, Jesus Christ is the only way that God meets with us. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. The blood of Christ is sprinkled upon us and we can approach him. If you want to meet with God, you have to go to his mercy seat. His mercy seat is Jesus. That's the propitiation that actually accomplishes the righteousness. It's there theologically on that mercy seat, historically on the cross of Golgotha, that our sins were actually punished. Propitiation has been described as as sort of the turning away of wrath. That's true, but, but it's more than that. We shouldn't think that God is sort of distracted by the cross and then turns his head towards Christ and forgets all about us and our sins over here. That's not it at all. It's, it's not just a turning away of wrath. It's a pouring out of wrath, but on someone else. It was on the cross where all that righteous wrath of God was poured out. It was on the cross where the perfect obedience of Christ was swapped for our complete disobedience, for our unrighteous rebellion. It's the great exchange. Christ drinks the cup dry, and we don't have to drink it at all. Instead, we get a cup of blessing. And so, Tim, each and every sermon, bring out the glories of the propitiation of Christ. Knowing you as I do, you probably won't use that specific word, and that's fine. But never leave the pulpit without declaring that the wrath of God has been poured out on someone else, on Jesus Christ. He's such great riches. And then finally, on the basis of what happened on that cross, we can see the purpose of Christ. Because of the cross, we are declared righteous. Because of the cross, we can breathe the free air again. We have been released from bondage to the devil. How great is our God to accomplish the salvation for us. How great is our God to offer us all of this, to bring us from death into life. And why? Well, he did this so that he can welcome us into his family. What he did was he took enemies, rapid, rabid and frothing at the mouth due to the infection of sin, and then responded in love to look on us in our sin, in our misery, and say, this will not stand. 
Not only will I conquer the sin, not only will I defeat the sinner, but I will be more than a conqueror. I will turn my enemy into my friend, I will turn the sinner into my son, and welcome him into my family. The purpose of Christ is reconciliation. These riches of Christ, these unfathomable riches, his person is the God-man, the Messiah. His propitiation, receiving the wrath of God, and his purpose, welcoming us into his family, offering reconciliation and true peace. These are riches that we can see clearly, but only see a tiny fraction of. God has a purpose for each of us, and God has a purpose for all of us together. There's also a glorious purpose for the church. That's our final point. What are we doing here right now? What are you doing right now? And what will you do in an hour, in a day, or on a Thursday night? But what we do, it has everything to do with who we are. And so who are we? We, we are the church. And so when we come here, it's not gathering for a speech. It's not gathering for a book club. It's not gathering to, to be a support group but rather we're gathering together as the church. And when we go home and go out into the world, we still are the church. It's an honor like no other. And our task, our purpose, our calling is twofold. And both parts conveniently start with the letter W. Easy to remember. We are to worship and we are to witness. Tim, as a pastor, maybe I should say 15 minutes or so away from being a pastor, You are a worship leader. You are the worship leader. Let's not so narrowly define worship leader as as an accompanist or a singer at the front, but from the first greeting to the final blessing, you are called to lead the church in worship. The way that you read scripture with awe and with joy, the way you pray, the songs that you choose, the sermons that you preach, this is all for the purpose of calling the church to greater worship greater growth into the love of Christ. I understand you'll get deeper into that in the next service. It's, it's all about worship. It's about kneeling down, humbling ourselves before our God. It's about falling flat on our faces when we recognize who God is and who we are by comparison. It's not only Paul who is the least of all the saints. Each of us should be able to take that title for ourselves. And that worship, it's meant to be a witness. This is God's purpose for the church. This is what Paul goes on to say in the text. Verse 9, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You can think of it this way. God, the creator of all things, he's an artist. And we know this, we we see how, as, as a painter, he gives us each day and night a beautiful canvas in the sky, black with stars, sunrises of yellow and pink, azure blue during the day, sometimes with wisps of cloud, sometimes with lots of cloud, sunsets of purple and red. And we see him also as as an architect building up mountains, carving out valleys. We see him as an author, writing the greatest book ever written. We see him as a sculptor making man out of the dust of the earth, 
knitting us together in our mother's womb. God is an artist. And his greatest masterpiece, above the grandeur of the mountain, above the beauty of the sky, is the church. We individually also, but much more, we together are the masterpiece of God. The work of art that he's been creating ever since the beginning of the world, and he will continue to paint until the end. God is the master artist. We, as the church, are the painting. Well, it's the message of the masterpiece. And, and then, who is the audience of the masterpiece? That's a twofold message and twofold audience. The message is reconciliation. That beautiful word again, that, that beautiful truth. But you just said that it was a twofold message. Well, yes, because there are two reconciliations that are taking place. This is the grand message of Ephesians. Reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, and then reconciliation between us and God. We could say it's that horizontal reconciliation and that vertical reconciliation. I heard it at the beginning of Ephesians 3, but it's clearer in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 16, it shows us this wonderful twofold reconciliation. This is what it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once, off, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. He has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles. These are the two, and what's the one? The one is the church. He's made us both one. One new man in the place of two, so making peace. Peace between these two groups of people who absolutely hated each other. You can't imagine the hatred that they had. Greeks called the Jews barbarians, thinking that any language other than Greek was just nonsense, sounding to them like bar, 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 bar. Barbarians. That's the name. That's where it comes from. The people who just spoke like bar, bar. Useless. And the Jews... They weren't any better. They were, in fact, far worse. The Jews said that the reason God created Gentiles was to stoke the fires of hell, to make it hotter for the Jewish sinners. He created Gentiles as firewood for eternal fire. Wow. But then in the church, these two groups of people with nothing but hatred between them, they're made one. In the church, they belong together and they love each other. And that second reconciliation, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jews and Gentiles are now together, but it's all for nothing if then together they wind up in hell. So God put them together and then he saved them. Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross for his church to save her, to love her, to welcome her in. That's the purpose. But who is it for? Who's, who's the audience of this masterpiece? Well, it is, first of all, for the world. For those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. When we worship together on Sundays, 
when we do our work on Mondays, when we go to meetings on Tuesdays, volunteer on Wednesdays, the list goes on, we are to be radiating light into a dark world. We are to be radiating love into a hateful world. We are to be radiating peace into a broken world. We're the painting. We're showing the love of the painter to the world. Jews and Gentiles together, who would have thought? Wicked, miserable sinners actually becoming holy, actually showing true, selfless love. Who would have thought? There's something different about these people. The audience is the world, but, but it's bigger than that too. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This painting, if we're going to continue with this metaphor, it's not just hung in an earthly gallery for the world to go and see it. Instead, it's in a universal gallery for, for the angels, both the good angels and the fallen angels to see, for the angels to marvel at and for the demons to shriek at. The angels we can read in 1 Peter, they long to look into these marvelous things that the prophets were prophesying. God's plan, God's manifold wisdom of salvation. And then it happened. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The angels, they didn't know the plan. Only God knew the plan, the great mystery. And he revealed it in Christ and displayed it in his church. The angels truly rejoiced that day when they saw the salvation plan come to completion. And then the demons, the one who Paul calls the authorities and rulers in the heavenly places, those who rejoiced at the fall, are their arch enemy God, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, just when they thought that they had won, when the promised Messiah that Satan had been trying to get rid of since the beginning was betrayed into the hands of sinful men, when the promised Messiah was accused and condemned by an earthly judge, when he was mocked and beaten, when he breathed his last, and just when Satan thought that he had won, it was exactly then in that very moment that he lost. The wails and the screams that must have erupted from hell at that moment, when Satan's final defeat and God's final victory were made clear to all, when that painting was finally unveiled. There were no dry eyes in the audience. Tears of humiliation and rage on the faces of some and tears of joy on the faces of others. This is what it's all about, Tim. Preaching the glory of God far and wide. Knowing that it's not about you. Never you mind, Tim. It's about God. This is what it's all about, congregation. Revealing the glory of God far and wide. Knowing that it's not about you. Never you mind, Sardis. It's all about God. Never you mind the weaknesses. Never you mind your doubts. Never you mind anything that does not bring about God's glory in a better, stronger, brighter way. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.
proceed to the ordination of our brother Timothy Veenstra. I will do so with the form intended for that purpose. If you wish to follow along, it's on the screen and page 618 of your book of praise. The consistory has now twice published the name of our brother Timothy Veenstra to learn if anyone had objections against his ordination to the ministry of the word. Since no one has brought forward anything lawful against his doctrine and life, we will now, in the name of the Lord, proceed to his ordination. Let us first hear what Holy Scripture teaches about the office of ministers of the word. The exalted Christ gathers his church through his word and spirit, and in his grace uses the ministry of man. The Apostle Paul indicates this when he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. As the chief shepherd who unceasingly cares for his flock, he appoints shepherds to take heed to the flock in his name. They are to take care of the sheep of Christ by means of the proclamation of the word, by the administration of the sacraments, and by prayers and pastoral supervision. In this way, the flock is tended and led in the right paths. In the early Christian church, this task was fulfilled by the apostles. They, in turn, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, appointed elders in every church. According to 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, 
there were elders who ruled the congregation. Some of them were also called to labor in preaching and teaching. The latter are now called ministers of the word. They have received the ministry of reconciliation, of which Paul speaks, saying, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The task of the minister of the word can be described as follows. First, he must declare the whole counsel of God to his congregation, proclaiming the word according to the command of the Apostle Paul. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. After the example of the apostle, he is to perform this duty in public and from house to house. He shall expose all errors and heresies as unfruitful works of darkness and exhort the membership to walk as children of the light. He shall teach the word of God to the youth of the church and to others whom God calls. For the Holy Scriptures are able to instruct them for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is also his duty to visit members of the congregation and to comfort the sick and the sorrowing. Thus comforting and admonishing, he shall call the whole congregation to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Second, he is to administer the sacraments, because Christ has joined this administration to the preaching of the gospel. It is therefore the duty of the minister of the word to administer holy baptism according to the command of Christ. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He is also to administer the Holy Supper as instituted by Christ when he said, Do this in remembrance of me. Third, it is his duty as pastor and teacher of the congregation to call upon the name of the Lord in public worship with supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Fourth, it is the duty of the minister of the word with the elders as stewards of the house of God to see to it that in the congregation all things are done in peace and good order. Together they shall supervise the doctrine and life of the membership. As the Apostle Peter said, shepherd the flock of God, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In doing so, they are to shut and open the kingdom of God by Christian discipline, according to the charge given them by Christ. From all this we see what glorious work the ministers of the word may perform. When the chief shepherd is manifested, they as faithful servants will obtain the unfading crown of glory. Brother Veenstra, will you please come forward? Beloved brother Tim Veenstra, you are now about to enter upon your office. We ask you to answer the following questions before God and his holy church. First, do you feel in your heart that God himself, through his congregation, has called you to this holy ministry? Second, do you believe the Old and the New Testament to be the only word of God and the complete doctrine of salvation? Do you reject all doctrines conflicting with it? Third, do you promise faithfully to discharge the duties of your office and to ordain the doctrine of God with a godly life? 
Do you promise to submit to the discipline of the church in case you should become delinquent in doctrine or life? What is your answer? I do. I now invite everyone who will participate in the laying on of hands to come forward. And because of your height, we're going to ask you to kneel. God, our Heavenly Father, who has called you to this holy office, enlighten you with his spirit, and so govern you in your ministry, that you may fulfill it obediently, and that it may bear fruit to the honor of his name and the expansion of the kingdom of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, you need to be charged still. This is a good charge, not in a court of law. Beloved brother in Christ, God our Father has obtained the church for himself with the blood of his own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has made you pastor and teacher of this congregation. Love Christ, feed his lambs, tend his sheep not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Keep watch over yourself. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Preach the pure doctrine, so that by your preaching and teaching, the congregation may be kept in obedience to the word of God. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Do not neglect the gift you have, with which the Lord has endowed you for this ministry. Devote yourself to, the duty, to your duties with all your strength and with perseverance, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Let us now rise and sing a song that should be the cry of every heart here, but perhaps on the heart of Pastor Tim, even more at this moment. Take my life and let it be, all six stanzas.
We will now continue our form with the charge for the congregation. Beloved brothers and sisters, the Lord has granted you this servant. Receive him with all joy. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Take heed to receive the word of God, which you shall hear from him, and accept his words spoken according to the holy scriptures, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you thus receive this servant from the Lord, the peace of God will come upon you, and you will inherit eternal life through Christ. Since we of ourselves are not capable of all this, we will call upon the Almighty God. Merciful Father, it pleases you to gather to yourself out of the whole human race a church chosen to life eternal. We thank you that you gather this church by the ministry of men and that you give this minister of the word to this congregation. We pray that by your spirit you will equip him for the ministry to which you have called him. Enlighten his mind that he may understand the scriptures and open his mouth that he may proclaim the mysteries of the gospel with boldness. Grant him wisdom and faithfulness to guide the flock in the right path and to keep them in Christian peace, that by his ministry and under his good leadership, your church may be preserved and increased. Encourage and comfort him by your spirit so that he may remain steadfast in troubles and temptations during his ministry. And finally, with all your faithful servants, may enter into the joy of his Lord. Grant that those entrusted to his pastoral care may acknowledge this servant as sent by you. Give that they may receive the instruction and admonition of Christ, which the shepherd shall bring to them, and that they may joyfully submit to his direction. Grant that through his ministry all may believe in Christ and thus inherit eternal life. Hear us, O Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit, one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. You now have the opportunity to give of your gifts that you have been graciously given by God, after which we will sing our closing song, glorifying, praising, blessing, and exalting the name of the Lord with the words of Psalm 103, the stanzas 1, 7, and 9. May God bless your giving. Thank you. 
in the Lord. Receive his blessing and go from this place, making little of yourselves and much of him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. There we go. Hi, so we have much reason to celebrate um, and, and give thanks to our Lord for blessing us with the pastor. Tim, welcome, as well as Kristen and the boys. Um, and so this evening after our next service, we will have a, uh, a celebration dinner and welcome evening. And then also at it right now, we invite uh, a brother from Pathway Christian Church. They wish to offer a word of congratulations. Uh, so Fritz Duma is here to pass that on, I believe. There he is. Come on up. So I am Fritz Duma from Pathway Christian Church. 
one of the two Canadian Reformed Churches in Abbotsford. On behalf of Pathway Church, I want to congratulate Reverend Veenstra on your installation as Minister of the Word here in Sardis Canadian Reformed Church. I'd like to read a little piece of the Canons of Dort from the first chapter of the third article. The first article is all mankind condemnable before God. The second one is the sending of the Son of God. And then the third article is titled the preaching of the gospel. So that men may be brought to faith, God merciful sends heralds of this most joyous message to whom he will and when he wills. By their ministry, men are called to repentance and to faith in Christ crucified. And then there's this uh, passage from Romans 10, verses 14 through 15. For how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? May God grant you the Holy Spirit as you enter into your ministry and preach the gospel, that good news of Christ and his finished work, the message of Christ's death for our sin, but also his perfect life, because we are, after all, saved by good works, just not our own good works. Maybe I should repeat that in case you think I'm a heretic. (laughs) After all, saved by good works, just not our own good works. And may your preaching of the gospel lead this congregation to respond with a life of service to God, this church, and your community. Thank you. Thank you. 